Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Amen, for that occasion and just for our nation, amen, and our world. Amen. Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2. Begin reading with verse number 14 tonight. Acts 2 verse 14. Continuing in our series on the book of Acts. Amen. I'm going to read 14 through 21. And the Bible says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will shew wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon shall, and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be Say, everybody say amen. 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 I got my wife is laughing at me here before church. I said I probably had enough stuff to go for two weeks tonight, and I gave her my scriptures. And she told that my father, she says, I've seen his scriptures, he's going to be long tonight. He says, But that's enough for two weeks. I said, No, that was just really for tonight. Those scriptures I gave to you, and so here we are this evening. I'm not going to be here for two Wednesdays after tonight. And so I'm going to be in Tennessee and such. So just ride with me here tonight. Everybody's nervous. Some people are grabbing their keys and, and coats and stuff and think that they have to go use the restroom right after I get them praying. Amen. Hallelujah. But I want to talk to you tonight about preach Jesus. I just want to talk to us now. Preach Jesus. Amen. Can we pray the Lord would help us? Hallelujah. Father, I love you this evening. I need you, God. We need you collectively, Lord, as a body of people that are here. I pray, O oh Lord, tonight, God, that you're able to speak, Lord, through your word, the teaching of your word. God, I pray, O oh Lord, let it impact our lives. Jesus, change, ultimately change, master our lives, and we'll be appreciative, God, for what you do, God, what you say, God, in this place and service, through your word, in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen. The church say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. Amen. There's still people registering for camp meeting i got another call today from uh, some people that wanted to bring some people from the church to camp was asking me about information and uh, i don't know how my name become the information source but it did amen but nevertheless hallelujah amen the verses of scripture that are presented right here these are these are really the first message the first message since the outpouring of the Spirit, the first sermon, if you will, that had been preached since the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And although it is Peter being the spokesperson, the Bible portrays that there is a unity among the disciples in support of what Peter was preaching about. The Bible tells us in verse 14 that he stood up with the eleven. So there is a unified front here. This is not the message of a lone man. This is the message of Christ in essence, but with the support of these, these other 11 that also heard and experienced what Peter heard and what he experienced. And with that being said, just kind of a side note, I believe it is still important today to have a unified front that's affirming the message that comes from even this pulpit. Amen. It's important to have a unity of voice concerning the truth that is expressed from this pulpit for certain. For certain, the gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection, we should all be able to lie line upon line and precept on precept whenever it comes to that. But it's vital tonight that Peter was the spokesperson, being that Jesus had given to him the keys to the kingdom 
of heaven. I think with great purpose, uh, Peter is the one to deliver this first message after the outpouring. The Bible says in Matthew 16 and verse 18, and I say also unto thee, this is Christ speaking to Peter, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so the whole revelation that Jesus was going to build upon, his church upon, whenever he spoke to Peter, was the revelation that Peter had received, which Christ said, Peter, you did, that flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But he said, that's been revealed to you from the God of heaven. And the revelation that Peter received, or rather understood, was this. He said that thou art the Christ, speaking to Jesus, the Son of the living God. In Matthew 16, 16, that is what Peter answered. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we'll delve a little deeper into that, probably maybe not tonight, but maybe a couple weeks from now. But whenever he said that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, we got to understand that Peter received a revelation in that moment. Christ is not Jesus' last name. And that might be that might just be an aha moment for some sitting here tonight. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the office that Jesus served in. It's the capacity that Jesus served in. Christ as an office means the anointed, or more plainly, the Messiah. And so whenever Peter said, Thou art the Christ, he understood who that man, Jesus Christ, was. He was the one that was prophesied from the Old Testament prophets. He was the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. And Peter had this revelation, while many of his day did not have this revelation, that Jesus was the Christ. He was the anointed. He was the Messiah. And so it was upon that revelation that Jesus would build his church. It's upon that concept that Peter would preach to these people that were gathered together about the meaning of everything that they had just witnessed. Everything that they had just witnessed with the outpouring of the Spirit of God, all these things, he would use that, that idea of Jesus being and serving in the capacity of Christ, the Messiah, and he was going to use that to bring it full circle because what he was basically going to do was let the Jewish people realize the person they were looking for is who they crucified. And whenever they seen that and understood that, they were going to feel guilty and shameful for having crucified the one that they were wanting. And it was going to leave them in a place to ask, what are we going to do about it? And Peter was going to have the answer about what they could do to change all of this around. And so Peter, he's going to, later in the scripture, piece together this revelation for his listeners. Amen. That the Christ they crucified is the Messiah that they were looking for. And once they have their guilt and their shame over having done this, he's going to tell them how they can do, what they can do to alter that and to amend that. But first of all tonight, I think it's great, and I'm doing this for ministry and preachers and pastors tonight, and so if that doesn't include you, sorry about that. Maybe it'll help somebody on the podcast. But nevertheless, what is important here, Peter's first sermon, this first sermon after the outpouring of the Spirit, is a very good outline about the makeup of a message or the makeup of a sermon because the Bible says that Peter stood up, first of all, he stood up and he spoke up. Right. Amen. That is the initial first good making of a sermon. Stand up and speak up. The Bible says in verse 14 that he lifted up his voice. Now I understand they didn't have the modern day equipment like PA systems and microphones. Amen. And so speaking up no doubt was absolutely necessary for everybody to hear him. A little elevated tone if you will. But I believe also that elevated tone brought with it a sense of confidence that Peter was confident about what he was talking about. I remember as kids in school, when our teacher asked the question, if you, you said it back, it kind of like, frogs in water. You thought you had the answer, but the way in which the tone of your voice was indicated you weren't sure you had the right answer. I believe Peter is standing up here. He's lifting up his voice, no doubt, for they can hear. But I also believe there is a certain sense of confidence 
amen, in that voice in what he had to say. And also it brings great comfort to me as a man of God, a pastor, because if you ever think I get loud sometimes, I just say I take my cue from Peter. Amen. Another good guideline here for Peter in the ordering of a message is this. Peter is answering the questions of the masses. There are two questions that he's going to address in his sermon, in the extent of it. First of all, their question, what meaneth this? And their other question, what shall we do? In his sermon, Peter answers those two questions very plainly and good preaching answers questions that people may have that may never even be asked all right preaching to the choir amen but not only does it do that it also corrects some suppositions what are you saying brother mcgee i'm saying there were some in the crowd that assumed that they were drunk on new wine but the bible says that peter also addressed that in verse number 15 telling them they are not drunk as ye suppose, being that it's but the third hour of the day, or it's 9 a.m., because again, or I think I said this last week in closing, that Orthodox Jews did not eat or drink before the third hour or 9 a.m., particularly on Sabbath days and special feast days, and this was the Feast of Pentecost. And so they were likely not, not, not eating or drinking any a new wine which we learned last week new wine was sweet wine it was wine that was yet to have fermented amen but he says no you got it wrong they're not drunk I'm not saying they're not drunk they're just not drunk as you suppose them uh, to be drunk and so if you notice though Peter if you read the, the, the sermon here of Peter Peter takes a text yeah he refers back to Joel the prophet Joel he also has some other supporting texts that we'll get into later. He finds within the Psalms. He, he has some uh, chapter 16 and, and 110 and 132 of the book of Psalms that he directs his audience to that he's taken this sermon from. And eventually he's going to lead this crowd, as I said, to where they are guilty. Amen. And then he's going to take them with their sermon leading to where they are guilty, but then directing them to where they need to be and how to get there. So he doesn't leave them in their guilt. He points them to a place where he can offer them in the end a hope. And so the makeup of a good message, stand up, lift up your voice, huh? take a text, answer questions, answer suppositions that may be wrong, right? Lead somebody to a place where they can feel they're accountable for what they've done and direct them to a place of a solution, of hope. The Bible says in Romans 15 and verse 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. There should be a certain, a, a certain twine or a certain thing in any message and that is to leave the people with a sense that no matter how bad it may be or how far they may have gone that there is always hope. Always hope hope and so Peter helps my confidence tonight because in his preaching he also demanded their attention he did we look at verse number 14 the Bible says that Peter said hearken to my words amen he said in verse 22 he said hear these words amen and so 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 Welcome to the life of a preacher. He, he, was, he was wanting them to pay attention to what he had to say. Amen. He didn't want them to miss what he was saying, or more importantly, what God was saying through him. How many times have you heard me in preaching or in teaching, and you've heard me say, now listen, right? Now listen, or lean in. What are you saying? I'm saying pay attention. Amen, because there's something about ready to be said that I think would be very important for our lives. Amen. And so look at this. Why is that so important? Because, folks, whenever I'm up here talking and, and, and I got 21 scriptures like I do tonight, Sister McGee, uh, I, I'm not speaking the words of McGee. I'm speaking the words of God. And the word of God, the word of God is the words of eternal life. And I don't want anybody to miss the eternal life that's being dispelled here tonight. Amen. As a matter of fact, throughout the book of Acts, the word of God is a very big focal point in the book of Acts. Peter begins the birth of the church with preaching. 
Yeah. He began the birth of the church with preaching. And when we come to the end of the book of Acts, the last two verses, Paul closes the book, guess with what? Preaching. Acts 28 and verse 30. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him. He's under a house arrest right now. Verse 31 says, what's he doing while he's there? Preaching. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. With all confidence, no man forbidding him. And you know what I found? From where Peter starts the preaching with the, new, with the birth of the church and Paul ends with preaching at the end of the book of Acts, I see splattered from Acts 2 all the way to Acts 28, all in between. Guess what's going on? A whole lot of preaching. Yeah, a whole lot of preaching. As a matter of fact, I just did a little survey of it and here's what I learned. They preach the word. They preach the things concerning the kingdom of God. They preached peace. They preached the Lord Jesus. They preached Christ. They preached in all the cities. They preached boldly. They preached the forgiveness of sins. They preached the gospel. They preached the resurrection. Amen. And so we witnessed the outpouring of the Spirit for all through Acts 2 on various occasions all throughout Acts, but not without the accompaniment of preaching. Because it's still by the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. Paul said that they were begotten by the gospel. Amen. When Peter told the people in verse number 17 that this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He was referring to the pouring out of the Spirit. That had just taken place. Joel had said that God had said, All right, I will pour out my spirit upon all. Everybody say all. Upon all flesh. There's something in that statement that Peter said and Joel said that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh that even went a little further than the day of Pentecost that day. Because on that day, many Jews, Many proselytes, Gentiles who had been converted to Judaism were recipients of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but all flesh was going to go beyond just Jew flesh. It was going to be Jew flesh, Gentile flesh, Samaritan flesh, the uttermost part of the world flesh, and ministry was going to be happening. Look, he said, he told us that what Joe said, said your sons and daughters are going to be prophesying. Young men having visions, old men dreaming dreams, handmaidens and servants, they will be prophesying, they will be speaking some of the wonderful works of the Lord. What he was telling them, that the Spirit's going to be poured out not just on the Jews, which may be wowing some people in the audience right there to think that it's going beyond them, but also that ministry was going to be happening not just through the males, but through the females, the young and the old, the lower class, and I guess inferred the upper class. Amen. John Piper said it like this. He, he said he is looking to a day when men and women everywhere will be so filled with God that they catch visions of him in the daytime, dream about him at night, and speak of him continually with their mouths. Yes. Amen. Of a coming day. And so it's amazing, though, when you go back to Joel 2, from which Peter took his text, you go back to Joel 2, and the first portion of Joel 2 is talking about how the Lord would visit his people, how the Lord was going to visit Zion, how the Lord was going to visit the Jews. But then there's that hinge there, amen, in Joel, where he says his spirit now, God's come to visit his people, but his spirit now is going to be dispatched upon all flesh. And that's the same thing that we see happen in the book of Acts. It seems to show up, first of all, primarily for the Jew. But by the time we get to Acts 8, the Samaritan is pulled into this. And by the time we get to Acts 10, the Gentile is pulled into this. So that it's going to reach all flesh. Jesus alluded to what was going to happen when his spirit got poured out in John 10, 16. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, he says, and other sheep. Everybody say Gentiles. And other sheep I have, he says, which are not of this foe. What foe? The Jewish foe. 
Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, he says. And they shall hear my voice. And look what he says now. And there shall be one. Not a Jewish fold. Not a Gentile fold. Not a woman fold or a man fold or a barbarian fold. Or, no, no. One fold and one shepherd. Why? Whenever we're all baptized by the same spirit, we're baptized into one body. And there's neither now any more Jew or Gentile or bond or free or female or male. You, I'm not a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian. No, I'm, we're all his. Amen. Someone say amen. And so Peter even would tell later, as we've looked at already before, Peter would tell later the council at Jerusalem that there was no difference between the Jews' experience and the Gentiles' experience. Let me read it again. Acts 15 and verse 8. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost. Everybody say, even as. Even as he did unto us, us Jews. God gave the Gentiles the Holy Ghost just like he gave the Jews the Holy Ghost. And put no difference. There is not on the shelf of heaven a good Jewish Holy Ghost and a Gentile Holy Ghost and a German Holy Ghost and a Chinese Holy Ghost and a Japanese Holy Ghost. No, there's one spirit that can baptize anyone that will receive it, anyone that will repent, anyone that will be baptized in that saving name and they can be a part of the body just like I'm a part of the Heaven's going to be a wonderful thing someday when every nationality, tongue, and person are going to be gathered together, having all received that experience. The Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 12, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Joel said, it shall come to pass afterwards. Peter interprets what Joel said now in the book of Acts as it shall come to pass, note the difference, he says, in the last days. Peter interprets what Joel says, brings an interpretation to the word afterwards to say the last days. Peter interprets what Joel says because it was happening right at that time period. And Peter wanted to clarify and define that time frame that was denoted as the last days. You're saying, Brother McGee, you are up your rocker. No, I am real well in my rocking chair right now. What I'm telling you is this. It has not been wrong for the generations that preceded us, nor for our generation, to say that we're living in the last days. As far as I can tell, according to God's word, last days seem to begin with the first coming of Christ. Amen? Amen? All right. Look, look at the verse of Scripture. Ask myself the question, how can this verse be true? Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is talking about uh, all the calamity of the last days wars and rumors of wars uh, there will be many false Christs and many false prophets and it's speaking about all these series of events in Matthew 24 and it comes to the 34th verse and it says now note he's talking about then sometime in the future but he was living back there in that generation and he says verily I say unto you this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled well let me tell you there's a lot of them that are dead what are you talking about this generation shall not pass? He was referring to the generation, those that are living in the last days. They, us, and those that may come after us, we're all living in the last days from the time of his first coming. From the time that he, because here is, here is the thought process. Whenever Christ came, and he died, and he was buried, and he resurrected, and he ascended up to heaven. He said, I'll send you the comforter. He, I won't leave you comfortless. And he sent the Holy Ghost, right? After that, any point in time, he could come back. After he ascended, any point in time, he could come back. And so they just believed if he could come back at any point in time, then we're living right smack dab in the last days. And as they were, so are we now. He could come back. You say it hasn't been for years. You sound just like some of those against Thessalonica. He could come back at any time. 
We are living in the last days. Uh Jesus left, his spirit came, but now we're in watching mode. Every generation since then have been in watching mode. According to Peter and Job, Peter just wanted to give a clarification, interpretation. Job said afterward, but since it started happening and Christ ascended and his spirit came, Peter says, this is the last days. And so every generation since Pentecost, in my estimation, has been living in the last days, the end times. Insomuch that Joel, whenever he gave his prophecy concerning the outpouring of the Spirit, he didn't leave it with that, but he kind of gave a, a, a forecast of the last days of the last days. Uh-huh. There's a little dual reference here because the outpouring of the Spirit is no doubt taking place in Acts 2 and continues, might I say, continues to do so, amen, which seemed to be the beginning of the last days. But Job goes on and he begins to talking about these different wonders in the heaven above, how there's going to be blood and fire and vapor and darkness and the moon and the blood and all these different things. And whenever you read those, you see those really being played out in the seals and, and in the trumpets and in the vials of the book of Revelation, which is in the last days of the last days. Prior to the second coming, and I'm not talking about rapture, I'm talking about God coming back and setting up his kingdom on the earth, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Yet, whenever we look at even people seeing visions that Joel prophesied and Peter reiterated, we see a few visions in the book of Acts. We do. In Acts 9, Ananias has a vision of who was Saul. That he should go to him, pray for him. That he would be converted. In Acts 10, we have Peter having a vision of taking this gospel to what was otherwise deemed an unclean Gentile group with his sheep that came down three times with, with, with unclean beasts upon it. In Acts 16, Paul had a vision of a man that was crying from Macedonia that was saying, come over here, we need your help. Something interesting to me about each of these visions in Acts 9 and Acts 10 and 16, all of these visions that they had was concerning spreading the gospel. Spreading the word beyond where they were. And I'm moving good. God's helped me. I've spoke fast. Someone better say praise the Lord. That brings me to the last verse of my setting, and it's going to take me a little time. <laughs> Acts 2, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How many has ever heard that verse of Scripture before? How many has heard that verse of Scripture misapplied before? How many have heard that verse of Scripture being the total, absolute basis for salvation before? I think it's also Romans 10, 13. You'll find it as well. It should come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this whole concept of calling on the name of the Lord. We'll see here through the next few minutes. Has a literal meaning of the name of the Lord being called up on someone alright in other words this is not just someone calling out to God and being saved the go to place for every apostolic is Matthew seven twenty one, where the Bible says not everyone that saith unto me Lord Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of of my father which is in heaven but listen to me for that matter later in Acts 2 after verse 21 later in Acts 2 somewhere around verse 37 these people that Peter has been speaking to ask their second question men and brethren what shall we do if the sum total of everything 
was executed in verse 21, Peter could have simply said, I already told you. Just call on the name of the Lord. But that is not what Peter said. Rather, he broke down what really calling upon the name of the Lord consisted of. Repentance. Baptism. Now listen to me. To call on the name of the Lord was to appeal to the name of the Lord because you have intentions or in a position that you're going to submit to the name that you're calling upon. All right? Everyone say, all right. Well, just let me listen to me. Lean in. Just walk with me. We studied a long time ago in this church, a long time ago it is now, several years, the Ten Commandments. One of those commandments is not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Because to call upon that name, the name of the Lord, Jesus, to call upon that name or take that name, as the Old Testament teaches us, different maybe than modern society names were more than just a name the name expressed the essence and the character and the nature of who and what that person was when you spoke the name you spoke the essence and nature and character of that individual and so if you took that name it was more than just taking the letters of the that name it was taking the essence nature and character of that name upon you Everything that name represented. And so to take his name, the name of the Lord, to take Jesus' name, yet, listen to me, to protect our lifestyles, our personal lifestyle, without any change in submission to that name, is to take his name in vain. To take his name, let's talk about this, to take his name in baptism, and to not allow the nature, essence, and character of that name to have any bearing upon your life is to take his name in vain. For instance, Paul's statement recorded in Acts 25 and verse 11, he says in this he is, he is uh, already being tried uh, and there's others that are trying to snafu him uh, very unjustly and he, he, he finally gets tiresome with it all and he says, I appeal unto Caesar. Now the word appeal there in verse 11 is the same word translated call or calling in our Acts 2.21 or our Romans 10.13. But Paul was not simply saying, I'm calling on Caesar to save me. He says, I'm appealing to Caesar. I like what James Bells wrote and it's enough that I'd wish to share it with you tonight. He says, Paul in appealing to Caesar was claiming the rights of a Roman citizen to have his case judged by Caesar. He was asking that his case be transferred to Caesar's court and that Caesar hear and pass judgment on his case. And in so doing, he indicated that he was resting his case on Caesar's judgment. In order for this to be done, Paul had to submit to whatever was necessary in order for his case to be brought before Caesar. He had to submit to the Roman soldiers who conveyed him to Rome. He had to submit to whatever formalities or procedures Caesar demanded of those who came before him. All of this was involved in his appeal to Caesar because to appeal to Caesar was to call, same word, to call or calling upon Caesar. And so whenever we call or have the name of the Lord called upon us, we're saying, God, we're putting our case in your hands of judgment. And to do so, then we submit to whatever uh -huh, that the judge requires. So Paul is calling to Caesar and doing so, he's involved in to be submitted to whatever Caesar's judgment is. That's really what calling on the name of the Lord involves. It involves obedience. And I'm not done. I'm not done. Let me just wiggle around here a little bit more. The Bible says in James 2 and verse number 7, 
It, it is an admonition from James, who was a, a half-brother of Christ. He's basically telling us not to act outside of the character of the name that we call on. It says in James 2 and verse number 7, the Bible says, Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called. Uh-huh. Says that aren't they not taking the name in an unworthy manner, that name on which you have been called? So they are, they are trying to defy, if you will, and try to, 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 to blaspheme and speak against that worthy name. Now, now I'm getting to a point here, this calling, we're at this calling upon the name of the Lord theme right here. Let's go back to the Old Testament and kind of just work our way up with this calling upon the name of the Lord thing. In number 6, in verse number 22, the Bible states these words, and the Lord everybody say the Lord I don't know if your Bible does it most Bibles do you'll find in these verses of scripture that the Lord is capital L capital O capital R capital D whenever you see the, 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 the word Lord like that there's sometimes it's not in caps there's other times you'll see Lord L-O-R-D but this is in caps capital L capital O capital R capital D Lord in the uppercase fashion denotes the covenant name of God meaning Jehovah or Yahweh the covenant name of God now notice what the scripture says here. And the Lord, the covenant name, spake unto Moses, saying, speaking to Aaron his son, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord, there it is again, bless thee. This is what he says. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name. L-O-R-D, uppercase, covenant name, upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. We'll put Jehovah upon them. Now, here's something very important. I covered this before, folks, several years ago, but guess what? It's review time. Amen. Several years ago, we talked about the covenant name of the Lord. His name, he says, I will place upon the children of Israel. I'll place it upon them. I'll evoke it upon them. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that names, particularly the Lord's name, could be invoked or placed upon places, people, and things. Places, people, and things. The Bible says in Genesis 4 and verse 26, going all the way back to Genesis, the Bible says to Seth, all right, to Seth, the one that replaced, amen, Abel in the family tree of Adam and Eve, Eve rather, not even, and to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. The literal translation of that is this. The name of the Lord, notice capitalized Lord, the covenant name. The literal translation is the name of the Lord was called upon them. Not so much they were calling upon that name, but that name was being called upon them or invoked over them. Listen to me, because here's what happens. When his name is invoked or placed upon something or someone. Whenever that happens, there are three things that take place. Whenever he puts his name upon something or someone, number one, it declares ownership. Number two, it declares redemption. And number three, it declares his presence. Just nod your head. I can deal with that. Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 26, the Bible says, looking at just where a name, and I'm not even talking about the Lord's name here. I'm just talking about a name. Where a name was placed upon something, particularly a city, the Bible says in Second Samuel 12 and verse 26, and Joab fought against Reba of the children of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David, his king. Joab's the captain of the host. And said, I fought against Reba and have taken the city of waters. He says, now therefore gather the rest of the people together in a camp against the city and take it. So Joab's went to war. He's taken the city, but he's saying, King David, get down here and take the city. Why? Because he says in verse 28, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. Because normally when someone took a city, they named it. They somehow got their name in it. Why? Because it denoted their ownership. Their ownership. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 5 and 7, speaking of David, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of... Why is it called that? Because it denotes ownership. The name is placed upon it, invoked upon it, and so it becomes David... Call it, well, we couldn't do Joab. David there too. 
Amen. If God puts his name on it, it's God's, it's Jesus, it's his name, and it denotes ownership. So whenever you take or place or put the name upon something, that is an act of ownership. The Bible says in Exodus 6, I got several scriptures right here in the end, but we'll fly. Exodus 6 and verse 6, the Bible says God is speaking to Moses. God is speaking to Moses. He says, wherefore say unto the children of Israel. This is what I want you to tell them, Moses. I am the Lord, uppercase Lord, covenant name. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgment, and I will take you to be to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am, I am the Lord your God. Someone catch that? I am the Lord your God. What's he doing? I'm placing my name on you. I will be the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. What's God wanting to do here, Moses? God is wanting to place or invoke his name upon a people. Amen. His covenant name. Jehovah. Yahweh, his covenant name upon the people. Look what happens in verse 6. Whenever I do that, I am going to redeem you. Because when he places his name upon something, not only does it declare ownership, it declares redemption. Not only does he say that, he says, look, in verse 7, I will take you as my people. Ownership. Whenever I place my name upon you, I'm taking ownership and I am taking you as the redeemed. You're going to be the redeemed. Amen. Not only that, folks, I'm excited about it. Praise God. Not only that, when his name was evoked, invoked over them, notice now, they submitted. Mm-hmm, just, like, just like Paul's appeal to Caesar. They submitted and obeyed and brought obedience, vowed obedience to that name how so because later when they are literally brought out of Egypt in Exodus 12 and there's all the peculiars and qualifications and itemized lists concerning the Passover they made sure they got him a lamb according to the prescription that they killed the lamb that they took enough for the house that they put the blood upon the lintel on the doorpost why because they had invoked the name of the Lord. And when that happens, redemption happens, ownership happens, and their will to submit. Their will to submit happens as well. Look, if you will, Exodus 3 and verse number 13, the Bible says, and Moses, I like it whenever most of my preaching can be in the Bible says. And the Bible says... And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come, we looked at this just here recently. Uh, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, shall say unto them, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Verse 15, and God said moreover unto Moses, thou shalt, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord uppercase, covenant name, Jehovah, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. Moses says, when I show up and I say God sent me, they're going to want to know what is his name. Now, why do they want to know what his name is if I said God has sent me or that God is with me? Because even the Israelites understood very plainly that if Moses could share the name Listen to me. They knew that where his name was or where his name is, his presence is. Or at least is approaching or is coming. Throughout the New Testament scriptures, we see that Christ sent out his disciples. He did so in his name.
He sent them and he said, then I'll come. He sent them in his name. But wherever his name goes, his presence is to follow, if not right side by side. And so in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, we see the accounts of the children of Israel, amen, becoming his because his name had been placed over them. Now I said all that, so call him on the name of the Lord or rather literally having the name of the Lord called upon you. When I say Lord, I'm talking about the covenant name, Jehovah. We come into the New Testament, we have a name. The name that we have is what Matthew 1, 21 spoke that that child that is born should be called, his name shall be called Jesus. Which literally means Jehovah say. Oh, Jehovah? Yeah, Jehovah. The Old Testament capitalized Lord covenant name. Someone say amen. That Jesus or Jehovah saves. So whenever that name is invoked in baptism, when that name is invoked in baptism or the calling upon the name of the Lord in the New Testament, as it said in Acts 2.21 or Romans 10.13, when we talk about calling upon the name of the Lord in the New Testament, it is deeply and invariably tied to baptism. Someone say amen. Look at Romans 10, 13. There it is again. For for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Look what happens here. You call upon the name of the Lord or you had the name of the Lord called upon you and you shall be saved. Why? Because when the name is placed upon something or someone, there's ownership, there's redemption, huh? salvation, Saving, someone say amen. amen. All right. more That's fine. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. The Bible says, it gives this long list of liars and cheaters and adulterers and blah, 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 blah. And then it comes to this verse of, of 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. It says, and such were some of you, just so we couldn't get pious. And he says, so you were all some of those adulterers and cheaters and liars and sinners, blah, blah, blah. That was some of you, but ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are, everybody say, justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus. What's that referring to? Our baptism. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus because you get redemption when his name is placed upon you. And, everybody say, and, and it says, by the Spirit of our God. He says, you all were liars. You all were cheaters. You all were sinners. But you've been justified because of the name that was put upon you in baptism. He owned you. He redeemed you. You were filled with his presence. And his Spirit came. That's why Peter could say in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ and you shall, everybody say shall, because when you get his name on you, his presence is coming up. His presence is coming also. Stand with me. I'll close. I really will. I'm tucking in right here and just get baptized in the name we call upon the name or have the name invoked on us ownership happens redemption happens and his presence shall receive happens it also denotes then whoever lets that allows that follows through with that name being placed upon them then that they should posture their lives in a submission obedient posture to the name that they have submitted to or the name that they've had spoken upon their life. So here's the gist of it all. The name of the Lord's been called upon you. You're owned by him. You're not your own. Not your own. Her lips shouldn't be. You're redeemed by him. Thank God we have and can experience his presence. Then, hopefully, I can submit and be obedient to that name. In essence, folks, and we're not all the way through Peter's little sermon here, but what Peter does through this, he is simply does nothing more but preach Jesus. Let me tell you, I've been doing this long enough. 
It's something that I struggle with in my own ministry. I've had other people talk to me about it. And I am always the type of individual I am wanting to find the go nugget. And I'm going mining. I got my, my light on my hat while I'm plucking through the scriptures of the, of the word of God. I'm always looking for the go nugget. Something that is just like a wow type thing of God's word. But when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter. About if I bring something to you, you're like, wow, I never heard that before. What it comes down to is if I can just simply preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. You can preach Jesus and then get saved. You can preach Jesus and then get healed. You can preach Jesus and devils will quake and just preach. Just preach. Propagate. 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 Jesus. In Acts 8, whenever he met with the Ethiopian eunuch, he's sitting there reading from Isaiah, talking about in his humiliation. Uh-huh. Philip asked him, he says, understand this what thou readest? He says, no, I don't. He got up in the chariot with him where he was. And the Bible says he started where he was. That's what you got to do with people. Start where they're at. But you know what the Bible says. And he preached Jesus to him. And before that chapter ends, he's being baptized in water. Oh, well, that's just a simple sermon. Let me tell you, it'd be great that we could just rally around the simplicity of Christ. Oh, repentance again. Oh, hearing about water baptism again. Hearing about the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Bless God, already been to all those bases. Well, thank God you have. But there's somebody in the dugout that's never ran them before. Hey, man, let's bow our heads here tonight. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.